So yeah, fresh back from holiday yesterday. I arrived back at 8.30 last night, um, all the way from Cornwall. It was uh, a bit of a long journey, but we made it, and I'm here with you today. Um, it's my privilege to share God's Word with you today, and we're, we're continuing on with this series that Tom started last week called Abraham, Father of Faith. Um, Tom, last week, did an excellent job uh, opening us uh, up, and I wanted to just share that with you. If anyone hasn't seen it, you can catch, catch up with it on our YouTube channel or on our website, and I'd highly recommend listening to Tom's preach from last week. Just as a reminder of where Tom got us up to, um, so Tom explained at the beginning of Genesis 12 that God had spoken to Abraham and given Abraham some promises. Um, we actually meet Abraham with a different name. He's called Abram, and that's how I'm going to refer to him today, um, because the changing of his name is a fantastic thing that will be covered in a later preach. Um, Abraham gets called to the land of Cana, and when he arrives, there was a famine there Tom caught us up with. Um, in that time of famine, he gets a bit fearful, so he goes to Egypt because they have got provision there. They've got the lush lands of Egypt. And Abraham's got quite a big group of people with him and a lot of livestock. Whilst he's in Egypt, things don't go massively well for him. And it's all at the expense of his wife. Um, so Abraham gets expelled from Egypt. And that was the end of Genesis 12. And that's what gets us to Genesis 13. Off the back of that, Abraham went to Egypt looking for support, looking for his provision, and he ends up getting expelled and his wife is treated badly there. So, I'm covering today Genesis 13 and Genesis 14. It's quite a long passage, so what I decided to do was I'm not going to read it out to you because that would take my 20 minutes, um, so I'm going to actually summarize it for you and catch you up with what's going on there. We are going to go to uh, Genesis 14 and verse 16, and then we're going to zoom in from verse 17 and actually read that together. But what is happening at this time? So Abraham has returned from Egypt, and he goes to the land of Negeb. Negeb means sort of a semi-desert. It's, uh, it's a nomadic lifestyle that Abraham is living, and he's moving around. Negeb is at the bottom of Israel. So it's in the, the bottom quadrant of Israel. There's not much water there. There's not much um, food there. And he's got a lot of livestock with him. He brings back his wife and his nephew Lot, who was with him, and all of their people that are with them. So there's quite a big group of them. We're told that Abraham has increased in wealth, and he's got quite a lot of gold and silver with him. And uh, he's trying to live on that land. At this point, he calls out to God. And he sets up an altar. So this shows that Abraham has now got this walking relationship with God. He's calling out to him. He's setting up altars to the Lord. And then he moves up and he settles in the Jordan Valley, which is about the middle, by the, the sea there, um, he, he sets up. 
He's with his uh, nephew Lot, as I mentioned earlier, and Lot has got quite a few livestock, quite, quite a few herds, and so does Abraham, and they end up bickering about how they're going to support themselves in this land, because it won't support both groups. So Abraham decides that he's going to go where Lot doesn't want to go. So he says, Lot, look at the land. If you choose to go right, I will go left. If you choose to go left, I will go right. Abraham is the older of the two, so he should get the best pick. But Lot chooses the best land. And he chooses to go and live in the valley near a city called Sodom. You may have heard of the city of Sodom, and you may know what happens to the city of Sodom. And what we find out is Lot goes and lives there, and it tells us in this passage that Sodom was wicked, and they were great sinners against the Lord. So Lot chooses a land that looks better, but leads him into a land of wickedness. God then, out of this, speaks to Abram. So Abram has gone to the lesser land, but God then speaks to Abram. And that's in Genesis 13, 14 to 17. This is an amazing part of that chapter because God is expanding the promise that Tom told us about last week in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. God says to Abram, look at the land around you. So Abraham knows this is the lesser land. But God says, look at the land around you. This is the land that I'm giving to you. And Abraham walks around the land, and then he talks to God again and builds an altar to the Lord. So Abraham actually, with what looks like the worst option, gets the promise of God, gets the better um, thing. He doesn't get the wickedness of Sodom. He gets the relationship with God. And then we get into this really interesting part. We get into Genesis 14, and it's talking about this political landscape that is going on at the time of Abraham when he's doing all this walking around and he's choosing the land and speaking with God. It tells us about nine kings. So there's five Canaanite kings. It includes the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they are in the land next to Abraham. And then there's four Mesopotamian kings. So they are kings from Iraq area. Um, and they have, they have dominated the five kings of Cana, and the five kings of Cana are paying tribute to these Mesopotamian kings. But the Canaanite kings don't like that anymore, so they decide to rebel against the Mesopotamian kings, who then, in turn, don't like that. So they decide to come down and beat them up and put them back into submission. On their way, the four Mesopotamian kings go through some really interesting lands. And I wanted to big these guys up for you because um, I want you to understand how powerful they were. They go through the land of Rephaim, Zuzim, and Emim, which is on this right-hand side as the purple line goes down. Those lands are lands of giants, which is just incredible. We're told when Joshua goes to see the land of Cana later on and the spies go out, they say there's giants in the land. Well, at the time of Abram, there were giants in the land too. Um, 
So those giants are in the way of these four Mesopotamian kings. They beat them up. The Mesopotamian kings defeat them. And then they loop back round and they defeat the five Canaanite kings. The five Canaanite kings run away. The Mesopotamian kings take their possessions. And as part of that, they end up taking Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abram. He was in the land of Sodom, and he gets wrapped up in this political landscape and gets taken away. A report is given back to Abram, and Abram organizes his troops, 318 men, and they go on an um, attack against these Mesopotamian kings who are giant killers. These guys are powerful nations. And Abram goes and he defeats them. He defeats them in the night and confuses them um, with his military tactics and defeats them. So, at this point, we're going to pause. And we're going to see how did Abram trust God through all of this narrative that is going on and just happening. So, Abram at the beginning, I said, leaves the land of Egypt. Egypt was a very lush land, good for livestock, good for feeding his animals, and he goes into the Negeb, which is a desert. Not very good for feeding your livestock, not much water, not much pasture. So he has to trust God from a position where he was comfortable, even though his wife was wrapped up in this thing in Egypt, he was comfortable. His livestock could be fed. There was no famine there. He, he could do things on his own. He could um, do his day-to-day activities and feed his animals on his own. But in the Negeb, he had to trust in God daily for his daily provision. So it's quite a vast difference. We find out that he actually has increased in wealth. So God has blessed him in the desert. So Abraham is forced to make a decision. Does he trust God and go into the Negev, or does he try and stay in Egypt and he trusts God? We then see that Abraham actively talks to God and he sets up an altar. This is a display of Abraham's growing relationship with God. He's now talking to God actively. He's now setting up altars, which goes, I am trusting in your promises. I am trusting in who you are, God. So I am going to worship you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to have a conversation and a relationship with you. He then has a choice to make with Lot. He has every right to say to Lot, you go and have the lesser land. I'm taking the nice land. But the nice land is next to the cities of wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram lets Lot make the choice, and then he goes into the lesser land, which results in being the promised land that God has given him, which is just incredible. So he trusts God when he makes that decision that God is still going to be with him, and God is going to bless him, and God is going to keep him safe. And God comes through. Are you trusting God in the decisions that you have to make in your life? Or are you trusting your human attributes or your best judgment? Are you petitioning God 
and saying, God, what is the best choice for me? And if God gives you the best choice in his opinion, and it seems like a lesser choice to you, are you still willing to follow that? Are you still willing to see God come through in his promises in the lesser choices that make no sense for man? This made no sense for Abraham. He should have had the better land. But the better land resulted in the wickedness. So it wasn't the better land, was it? (laughs) Abraham also then goes and fights for his family. He hears about Lot being taken, and he gets the report of who's taken him. So there are giant killers that have taken Lot and all his possessions. But Abraham goes, nope, I'm going to go and get him back. I'm going to go and fight these guys, and I'm going to get him back. So that either shows a couple of things. Either Abraham was really arrogant, or he had trust in somebody who was bigger and greater than these kings. And I think it's the the second one there. And we'll find out about that later. But he goes and he fights for his family. Are we fighting for our family? Are we willing to put ourselves on the line and fight for our family? And when I say that, I'm talking about, yes, your biological family. Are you petitioning and asking God to work in their lives? If they don't know Jesus, are you asking God to touch their hearts through prayer, through his Holy Spirit, to get them to come to God? But I'm also talking about us as a church. Are you willing to fight for your brother and sister side by side with you in this church? Are you willing to be prayerfully devoted in that fight for the the person's relationship with Christ, for the person's betterment with God? So he then trusts and he goes and defeats these kings. And he gets Lot back, as we said earlier. And then what does he do directly after that? It says that he built an altar and called to the Lord. So he's continuing this trustful relationship where he's talking to God. Then we get to this really interesting portion of Genesis 14. And I wanted to read it with you. So it's Genesis 14, and we're going from chapter 7, uh, sorry, verse 17. Um, so I think I've got that there. There we go. So we get to, we find out about this mysterious character called Melchizedek. And we're just going to read this together. Um, Apologies for my pronunciation of the old names. (laughs) Hopefully we would get there. After his return from the defeat of Cheddar or Lamer and the kings who were with him, and the king of Sodom went out, uh, sorry, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons 
but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and, sh- and the share of the men who went with me. Let these other people have their share. Really, really interesting. Now, kids, I've got some sweets. (laughs) And I'm going to be talking to you about who Melchizedek is. And we're going to be looking at some attributes of Melchizedek. And I want you to think about who does this remind you of? These attributes of this man in this land, who do they remind you of? And if any one of you are brave, you can come up and you can tell me, and I'll give you a sweet if I think you're, you're there. Parents, you can help them if you get it as well. <laughs> so who is Melchizedek? We only get three verses that explain who this person is, but this person is super significant in the Bible. So we're told that Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Sounds like a place that we'd all be familiar with called Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's because it's the same place. He is the king of Jerusalem. Psalm 76 and verse 2 tells us that. It confirms that Salem is Jerusalem. He's the priest of the Most High God. So there's this guy in Cana who's a king who is worshipping and is a priest of the Most High God. He gives Abraham bread and wine. Bread and wine is quite significant in the Bible. Does anyone remember a meal that might have happened that involved bread and wine? Last Supper, good job, well done. He can bless people, and he blesses Abram, which means that he is higher than Abram, because blessings can only come from the top down. So he is higher than Abram. And he then receives a tithe from Abram. And I'm going to give you some insight into some other things as well. Melchizedek, we're told in Hebrews, means king of righteousness. And Salem means peace. So he was the king of righteousness and the king of the place called peace. Kids, have you been racking your brains? Who do you think this sounds like? Anyone brave enough to come? Who do you think? Jesus. Good job. Do you want a... Let's give you that one. You ready? (laughs) I've got a good shot. Look at that. Anyone else thought it was Jesus? (laughs) Got one more. Going long. Look at that. Good job. Well done. So this character, Melchizedek, is in the Old Testament and he appears to be a type of Christ. 
Some people think that it was Christ, but that meant that Jesus came and he lived a life and he ruled in a land for that long period of time. I believe that this is a type of Christ. This is a person in the Old Testament who is pointing us to who the Messiah is going to be and what the Messiah is going to be like. Which is so, so awesome, thinking about it in that way, that actually God drops people into history that we can look at and go, wow, Jesus lines up like this. This person was an image of who Jesus was going to be. We get a bit more information in Psalm 110, and I did want to read that with you as well. So Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the, and you rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, a holy garment. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your mouth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, and he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this psalm was called a messianic psalm. This was a psalm that spoke about the Messiah to come, and it was something that the Jews were looking at and they were saying, this is what Christ is going to be like. This is what the Messiah is going to be like. And he's going to be in the order of Melchizedek. So he's going to be in a priesthood that is different in the order of Melchizedek. This psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament as well. Just really, really interesting. And Jesus uses it himself in Matthew 22 and verses 41 to 46. And he uses it with the Pharisees to say, who is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? So we've established, the the kids helped us with that, that we looked at Melchizedek, and we said, Jesus looked a little bit like that. Jesus is the Messiah, after the order of Melchizedek. This psalm displays to us that the Messiah is going to be higher and greater than David, than angels, than kings, and he is going to rule an eternal rule forever and ever. This Messiah will be ruling as a king and as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Really interestingly, with the nation of Israel... God separated kingship and priesthood. You had the Levitical priesthood that was established in Aaron and then through Levi, and they did all of the sacrifices to God. And they had to daily cleanse themselves so they could then be clean to then go and sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then the kingship was ruled through the line of Judah. We get one example of a guy that tries to become king and become priest during the time of that um, 
the Israelites, and that is Saul. Saul goes and sacrifices. And what happens to Saul? He loses his kingship. So the order of Melchizedek is distinctly different to the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood is a temporary part and it is to point out our failings. Whereas the Melchizedekian priesthood is an eternal priesthood and it's got the line of Judah wrapped up in it. It's got the kingship of Christ wrapped up in it and it is a priesthood that is able to deal with our sins and not just for a time. We get to see a lot of what God is talking about with Jesus, the Messiah, in Hebrews. Hebrews is a great book. And I'm not going to read chapter 1 to 7, which is going to tell you about Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek, and how Jesus fulfills the Messianic part. He is the Messiah. But if you want to do your own study, I would recommend reading Hebrews chapter 1 to 7. And that would tell us that Jesus is higher than the angels. He is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He is greater than Joshua. He is greater than the Levitical priesthood of the Jews. He's both king and priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek points to us 2,000 years before Christ to a type of Christ, and then Jesus fulfills that when he comes, and he lives as a man. God is inspiring the words and the history of this world and weaving in his threads through it. There are many, many people in the Old Testament who are Christ types. And it's just amazing that God was dropping that in for us to discover and us to find. Melchizedek stands between God and Abraham and he acts as a mediator. He blesses Abraham as he is the greater of the two and he receives a tithe from Abraham. He gives him a meal of bread and wine which is the picture of Christ's body being sacrificed 2,000 years later on the cross. His body being broken for us. His blood being shed for us on that cross. Jesus is better and greater. He is the fulfilment of the Old Testament. He is the God-man that comes and acts as a mediator for us between God and us. He is able to deal with our sins And Jesus is the guarantor of that covenant with us. He offers himself freely as a sacrifice for our atonement. And this is the amazing part. He is the conquering king. I'll tell you the end of history, a spoiler. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. His kingship and his priesthood will last forever. He is our hope and he's our forerunner. And he intercedes for us always because he is living and active forever. He has no end.
I want to invite the band back up now. Abraham trusts God, and he gets to meet a type of Christ. You can meet the Christ today. Not a type of Christ, the living Christ today. Jesus is living and active. He is close at hand. He is the King of kings, and he is our Savior. He wants to meet with you. If you don't know him today, you've got an opportunity to meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our promised hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we do come before you and we thank you for your goodness and your love for us. We thank you that you are magnificent. We thank you, God, that you put in little drops in the Old Testament and through history of people that are like Christ to help us recognize Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you are in the order of Melchizedek. Yours is an eternal kingdom and an eternal priesthood. And we thank you that you came and died for us and made a way for us to be reconciled to God. That we can come to God through you. The veil is torn. Your blood was sacrificed for us. And our sins can be dealt with. We thank you for your great love for us. And we thank you for your free access in relationship with you. I pray you help us, Lord, to come to you, seeing you as king and priest, and that we will love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.